Well, good morning, Hillcrest family. I said good morning, Hillcrest family. Amen. What a good looking crew. Give yourself and the Lord a hand this morning. Put your hands together and let's say amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. We're kind of back on a normal schedule today, and we're delighted that everybody's uh, wherever they may be today. For those of you here in the Nine Mile Campus, we welcome you. For those of you who are at Spanish Trail, <coughs> delighted to have each and every one of you there worshiping the Lord across town this morning. And to the many of you who continue to worship from wherever you may be, most of the time from your home, we realize that so many of our people uh, are uh, people of compromised health, autoimmune issues, or they're living with someone who is elderly and the like, and that's probably going to continue to restrict and confine them uh, to worshiping from home for a while. But we want you to know that we know you're there, and we love you, and we're thankful for you, and certainly praying for you in these uh, very important days. How many of you all uh, went to Connect Group here at Nine Mile this morning? Anybody already been to Connect Group? Okay, a few of you, great. Some Connect Groups are meeting, and some are not for same reasons. And so uh, we're delighted for those of you who are able to kind of reconnect physically uh, with your group uh, this morning. Uh, we're in a series of messages on the Apostles' Creed. Really, it's a series of messages on the, the, the fundamental cores of what we believe. I think it's important for us to be able to say something uh, even more significant and more deeply than simply saying, I believe the Bible. Now, you should say, I believe the Bible. We do believe the Bible at Hillcrest. Isn't that right? We believe the Bible at Hillcrest. But what does that mean? Somebody says, okay, but so what? Are you able to give some articulation of just what it is about the Bible that's significant to you, what is of most importance to you? And obviously, uh, it takes many, many years to effectively sit down and discuss and, and debate and articulate everything we believe about the Bible. I could begin a series of messages, here's what I believe about the Bible from this pulpit, and I wouldn't even be 20% through it by the time the Lord took me home, and that assumes that the Lord's going to allow me to live to be 102 years old. So there's a lot that we could say about our faith. But the reality is we want to talk in these few weeks together about the fundamentals of our faith. What is it that is, that's just non-negotiable? And to help us have a framework for that, we're simply looking at an important confessional statement of the church that's been around for about 1,800 years. <clears throat> it's called the Apostles' Creed. The apostles didn't write it, but it was pieced together by many early church leaders some 200 or 300 years after the period of the early church. And the Apostles' Creed is important because it effectively synopsizes the preaching of those early apostles into a memorable form. And I hope by the time we're finished with this that you will have committed the Apostles' Creed to memory. It's very easy to memorize. To this point, we've already looked at two principles of what we believe about God the Father. We've looked at two, uh, uh, two principles of what we believe about Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, and we're in the midst of that discussion from the Creed concerning exactly what it is we believe, most importantly, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The statement about Jesus that's in the Apostles' Creed is by far the longest section of the Creed. It's about two-thirds of the Creed, and uh, it composes the great majority of what the authors wrote. 
here contained in this confessional statement. And we're right in the middle of it. The creed has three statements concerning the death of Christ. Three statements, three distinct uh, shadowings of what it is we believe about the death of Christ, which obviously highlights the importance or the significance of the death of Jesus Christ to us. Here's in part what it says. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Last week, if you were here, we delved into this statement, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then notice what comes next, this emphasis on the suffering and death of Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended to the dead. Now, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover all three of those important statements about the death of Christ in one message. And so we're going to take just a little bit to unpack it. Beginning today with the message that's before us, I believe in a Savior who suffered. Now, I don't relish the fact to talk about the nature of suffering, the nature of suffering of Christ, the nature of suffering to believer, it's not necessarily what we might consider the most positive thing to talk about in a Sunday gathering, but the reality is you're going to face it in your life whether you know Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord or not. Every person living in a sin-fallen world is destined to suffer this side of eternity. And for some people who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your suffering will last completely throughout eternity. And this is why it's so important to get victory over suffering and a right perspective in suffering, which can only happen when you properly understand the suffering of Jesus and why it's super significant for you as an individual. In his book on the the Apostles' Creed, Dr. Al Mohler, who's president of one of our seminaries, Uh, has a section in there on the suffering of Christ. And in that chapter, he reflects on the first time he went to see Mel Gibson's movie from several years ago, The Passion of the Christ. Anybody here remember that movie? Or maybe went to see that movie or have it on a DVD or whatever? Those of you who remember it all the way back to 2004, which seems to me like the day before yesterday. And the sobering thing is we have some pretty good-sized people in our church that weren't even born in 2004, which is stupid. But that's, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, I can remember going to see that movie when it premiered, uh, premiered in Branson, Missouri, where Brad and I were serving together, and he and I went to see it alone. We didn't take the girls because I'd heard that it was really tough to watch, and it was tough to watch. That movie became um, something of, uh, of, of, of a talk of conversation. It became famous and to some notorious for its unapologetic and very graphic depiction of the suffering of Jesus. Those of you that saw it probably squirmed a little bit in your seat, uh, maybe closed your eyes for a period of time at the depiction, and yet the reality is, it's like some of our veterans who went to see Saving Private Ryan and the landing on the beaches of Normandy. So many of those veterans say, man, that had to be the most lifelike thing. And virtually every veteran would say, when they saw that movie, you know, that, that was pretty good, but it was worse. And I have a feeling that's probably true when it comes to the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to imagine that if you actually saw the the movie. 
regardless of what you may or may not believe about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, one thing that's indisputable is that he was a real guy. You cannot say without being laughed at in your face that Jesus was a mythological figure. Jesus was just as historical as any of the Roman Caesars, just as historical as any of the American presidents. He was a real, live, living, breathing, historical figure. And another thing that's indisputable about this real, live, living figure of history named Jesus of Nazareth was that he actually died on the cross. That's not made up. That is an actual fact of our human history. He died a cruel, torturous death by crucifixion sometime between the year 30 and 33 AD. And there are even secular historians that mention that. First among those is the the Roman Jewish historian Josephus, who has several things to say as a non-believing writer of history about Jesus of Nazareth. Most importantly, this statement from 93 AD, Pilate had Jesus condemned to a cross. The apostle Peter says it this way in the book of 1 Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, or as the ESV says, the righteous for the unrighteous. The preposition there can be translated a number of ways. The righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous one instead of the unrighteous many, which would be you and me, and that'll be important to remember in just a minute. Purpose statement, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Now, what do we need to know about the suffering of Christ and Why is it so important that it's given such prominence here in the Apostle Creed, listed as a fundamental truth of the historic church? Well, let's talk about that for the next few minutes, beginning today with how Jesus suffered. Next time, I'm going to have a message just on the cross itself, which will help us better understand why Jesus suffered and died. But let me give you several things as we begin this multi-part look at the suffering and death of Christ as a core conviction of our faith uh, to chew on this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus suffered in a variety of ways. He suffered, first of all, under the religious leadership of his day. And that was the case from virtually the very beginning of his three-year public ministry. Jesus suffered abuse of just about every kind from the religious establishment of his day. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus worshiped in synagogues, but Jesus taught very openly, both in the synagogue and in the marketplaces, about the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom that he had come to communicate, that he had come to represent. And he suffered abuse of just about every kind from the religious establishment of his day because of that. He was questioned and he was tested, he was slandered, and he was vilified. There were plots to destroy him. There were even attempts on his life prior to the time of his crucifixion. All of this, of course, came as a result of the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and the public works of Jesus. The Jewish religious leadership of Jesus' time, men that we typically refer to as Pharisees and Sadducees, Sometimes we lump the scribes in with those two. These guys, these men 
well-respected by the community, were self-proclaimed protectors of the most important possession of the Jewish people, namely the law of Moses. They were protectors uh, of the law of Moses in terms of their understanding of the law of Moses. We would read the Gospels and we would say, well, really, what they were protecting was their own personal interpretation of the law of Moses. And because Jesus' interpretation of much of their interpretation of the law of Moses uh, caused them to butt heads, this is why they didn't like the Lord. And this is why they persecuted Jesus in so many ways. They were hyper-traditional, hypercritical, especially when it came to people who didn't march in lockstep with their interpretation of the law. Now, we can be just as bad in the church today. We can hold people accountable even for the gray areas of the Bible where the Bible is silent. If somebody disagrees with our particular take on a particular theological issue, we're really good at keeping people at arm's length and ostracizing people when people don't always walk in lockstep with what we believe. But nobody could do that like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Early in the ministry of Jesus, for example, they heard Jesus forgive the sins of a paralytic. That's in Mark chapter 2. Right at the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, there was a paralytic placed before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that, I mean, they were looking for physical healing, but the first thing that Jesus does is forgive the man's sins, which caused every religious leader's eyes to blow up to the size of fried eggs because only God could forgive sins, right? And Jesus looked at them and basically says, right, you got it. Now what you going to do about it? Because that was part of his way of communicating the distinctiveness of who he was. And they were totally sideways about that. Not long after that. He healed a man's withered hand, and then he fully restored the legs of another paralytic. Right there, almost back to back to back in the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And when he healed those paralytics, the Bible is clear that he did it on the Lord's Day. He did it on a Sabbath day. And from that time forward, that was so offensive uh, to the Jewish religious leadership that they plotted how they might take his life. Look at Mark 3 and verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, which was a political party that they hated. They held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. Now, of course, Jesus uh, was pretty streetwise. In fact, he was God, so he was like omniscient. He knew everything, right? And so this came as no shock to him. He knew this was going to be the reaction. He knew the abuse was going to get worse as he eventually, over a three-year period of time, started to make his way closer and closer to Jerusalem for the final time and his final Passover. And about halfway through his ministry, how he taught his disciples began to change in light of his own personal understanding that the intensity of his suffering was going to get worse rather than better. And so in an attempt to prepare his disciples for the kind of Messiah that he had come to be in order to prepare his disciples for what they were about to face, about 18 months into his three-year public ministry, Jesus begins to teach his disciples this very thing about the intensity of his personal suffering. Look, for example, uh, here at this statement. From that time on, 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. That's Matthew 16. Now, you see the emphasis there on the suffering from the religious leadership, and that's, as you should know, exactly what happened. Jesus was arrested by the religious leaders. Jesus was basically dragged before six tribunals for trial, and three of those were religious in nature. He was dragged before the Jewish authorities, before Annas, who was the high priest emeritus at the time. He was then taken to the home of Caiaphas, who was the then setting high priest. And then he had a third religious trial before the full assembled Sanhedrin there at the very end of those six trials. And all along the way, he'd be falsely charged. He would be slandered. He would be accused. He would be subjected to a measure of physical abuse, even during the period of his trials, which would only get worse. And to add insult to injury, the religious establishment would constantly inject their opinion and their influence when they decided they needed to take him to the Roman authorities. They would then slander him and begin to make things up about him because they knew that was their only hope for capital punishment. And speaking of that, let's not forget, secondly, that Jesus suffered not only under the religious leadership, Jesus suffered under the Roman leadership. There's an interesting fact about the Apostles' Creed, and that is that Pilate's name is in it at all. Does that, I mean, did that strike any of you as odd? I mean, I wouldn't have put that guy's name in there because he's a dirty dog, low-down dog. And yet his name ends up in there, and it's like, why would you put the, that guy's name in there of all people? The only name that's in the Apostles' Creed outside of the members of the Godhead and the Virgin Mary is the name of Pilate. But see, this goes to show you why the Lord in His wisdom didn't have me on the writing team of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, because I think God wanted that name in there. I think it's important. That it shows a lot of wisdom of the people that we're putting together. You know why? Because the name of Pilate in there anchors the, the words and worship of Jesus to history. Because there's no question Pilate was a real guy, right? So if you're making up a story, you're not going to connect it to Pilate because there's a lot of stuff about Pilate that can be uh, basically proven by history or substantiated by history. We know that Pilate was a real guy, that he was a rough and tumble pol a politician. Uh, we know that Pilate was not a mythical figure that he ruled in uh, Judea as the procurator of Judea, the governor of Judea, for a 10-year term between 26 and 36 A.D. We know exactly when he served. We know where he serves, the building where he served. And the Jewish leaders wanted, of course, Jesus dead. But they, they had no legal authority to condemn any man to death. The Jews couldn't go out willy-nilly and just start exercising uh, justice in their own way. They could adjudicate some religious crimes that were within their domain, but they could not put anybody to death. That was reserved for the Roman authorities, and they knew that. Uh, and so Luke 23 and verse 1 says that the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. 
this rough-edged, foul-mouthed politician who wouldn't think twice about punishing anybody who was causing trouble in his district. And again, the thing about that is that Pilate and the Jews and the Jews and Pilate did not have a flowery relationship at all. They had no good relationship. They hated one another, which makes this all the more suspect. The Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate because they know it's a matter of political expediency. In order to get Jesus on a cross, Pilate is their only hope for that happening. So the Jewish leaders are upset with Jesus because they believe him to be a blasphemer. That's what they're upset. They, they're upset with him because he forgave sins. They're upset with him because he violated their interpretation of the law by healing people on the Sabbath and doing other things. They, they, they're upset with him because he did things like cleansing the temple and driving out the money changers, which was a threat to their income. So in some sense, it was about the money too. So Jesus was a threat. He's a blasphemer, makes himself out to be God. The thing about that though, the Roman governor isn't going to care a thing in the world about that. What does the Roman governor care about blaspheming? He doesn't even believe in the God of the Jews. And the Jews are smart enough to know that. They know that Pilate's not going to, they're not going to get very far with Pilate by saying this guy blasphemes our God. They would have thrown them out instantly. So they have to come up with a different charge. They have to change the rules. They have to move the goalpost. And so what they <clears throat> do is they charge Jesus with sedition, potential insurrection. This man is claiming to be a king. Now all of a sudden they have Pilate's ear, don't they? Because that puts Jesus in opposition potentially to Caesar. Now Jesus, of course, had done no such thing. Now, he had claimed to be a king, but not a rival king to Caesar. And so this gets him a hearing before Pilate. Pilate examines Jesus, and Pilate could spot an insurrectionist in Palestine from 10 miles away. Pilate dealt with insurrectionists all the time. And Pilate dealt harshly with insurrectionists because they were a threat to the empire. But try as he might, he looked Jesus up and he looked Jesus down. He interrogated Jesus. But one thing that he could not find in Jesus was an insurrectionist. This guy doesn't fit the mold. I, I listen, and I know insurrectionists, right? I know guys who are trying to take my life and guys that are out there undermining the work of the empire, but this guy's not that guy. And so what you find in the gospels is a conflicted pilot who doesn't believe Jesus is really guilty of, of anything. And so he tries to release him. Time doesn't permit us to go through all of what Pilate did, but I believe the spirit was moving in Pilate's life. His wife has a dream about Jesus, where she tells him, you ought not have anything to do with this guy. You need to turn the guy loose and remove yourself from him. And yet it's politics, politics, politics all over this. Pilate knows he can't do that. 
without causing further trouble in the kingdom amongst the Jews, which obviously is a significant population of Jerusalem. And so even though he believed there was no guilt in Jesus, he comes to the realization that tries he might, he's not able to pass the, uh, the, the problem off to somebody else, though he does try to do that. And so eventually, having tried everything that he knew to try, unsuccessfully, he ends up washing his hands of Jesus. And the Bible says, he gives in to the crowd who is by this time shouting at the top of their lungs, what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And so he dips his hands in a basin of water, washes his hands, kind of absolves himself almost like a priest. I am innocent of the blood of this man. And he turns him over to the guard for him to be crucified. And man, you know what happens next. This is what made the movie famous, right? He is mocked, he's spit upon, hairs of his beard are plucked out. He was scourged with a cat of nine tails, which wasn't just a whip of leather. It had fragments of bone and, and glass and metal tied to the ends of it. 40 lashes minus one. I mean, the flesh was literally ripped from the back of the Lord Jesus Christ and probably from the sides as well as that thing grasped his rib cage and then it was pulled back in a violent fashion by the one doing the scourging. And it's only a miracle that Jesus die, didn't die during that period of time. Then a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And our Savior was eventually forced to carry on his ribbon shredded back the crossbeam. It's like a railroad tie of his own cross to the place of his execution. There you know the story. Nails like railroad spikes would have been driven into his wrist and into his feet. And eventually a spear would pierce his side and literally break his heart. And all of this, of course, stands as a testimony to the intensity of the excruciating physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost too much to bear, even just hearing it with your own ears. Jesus suffered under the religious leadership. Jesus suffered under the Roman leadership. But never forget that the death of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus was perfectly in the will of God. So it must be remembered that Jesus suffered under the Father's leadership as well. Everybody wants to argue who put Jesus to death. Ultimately, I did. I did. Say, you did. Well, you did too. You know, we want to blame the Jews and we want to blame the Romans. I mean, fundamentally, it was my sin that put him on the cross. Jesus came to die in my place. For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous one for the unrighteous many. I'm responsible. I'm responsible. Now, the Jewish leadership were complicit. They wanted him dead. Pilate, complicit, responsible. He didn't necessarily want him dead, 
but he ordered his death. But never forget that the suffering and death of Jesus Christ stands behind the entire purpose of his birth at Bethlehem. That's why he was born. That's the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of his coming. And it was the Father's will, the heart and soul of the Messiah's mission. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to what? Say it out loud. To accomplish his work. That's right. To finish his work, to complete the mission. And that mission, of course, involves suffering and and dying in the worst kind of way, death on the cross. A suffering Savior, by the way, was prophesied long before Jesus was ever born. You go back to the Old Testament, and the great prophets of old were quick to remind us in their preaching that there was a Messiah coming, but it wouldn't be a conquering political military Messiah. He would be a suffering Savior. That's significant because after his coming, had Jesus succumbed to the temptations of the devil that were before him from the very moment of the time he was baptized to inaugurate his public ministry, had he succumbed to that, this temptation to becoming a political leader, a military leader, a savior of that kind that everybody seemed to be looking for because they were just so tired of living under oppression. They wanted to be at the top of the heap again. But if Jesus had succumbed to that, I mean, the word of God would have been proven fraudulent. All of those prophets would have been proven wrong. And the Bible would be deemed totally untrustworthy. Of all of those prophecies of a suffering Christ that we have in the Bible, probably the most famous is Isaiah 53. Many have described Isaiah 53 as the most important single chapter of the Old Testament because of what it communicates about our Savior, because of what it really communicates. It doesn't use the word cross But you can't read Isaiah 53 and not see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ from start to finish. Look at what it says in part. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Man, note all of those incredible single words, despised, rejected, sorrows, grief, uh, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounds, over and over and over again in a compounding layer upon layer effect. 750 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration and leadership of the Holy Spirit, communicated to the people of God exactly what would happen to their Messiah, to their Savior, who would come to liberate them. And they conveniently, these great keepers of the law, 
conveniently and eventually came to turn a blind eye to the clear teaching of their most important ancestors. And never forget the suffering of Jesus is directly related to the human condition caused by sin. See, this is why that you have a statement about suffering as one of the core fundamentals of what we must believe to be Orthodox Christians. Why it's in there. Because a Savior that doesn't suffer is no Savior at all. The suffering of Jesus was necessary. It was absolutely essential. Isaiah, for example, will write in the next verse, verse 6, why is there a need for a Savior that suffered? He answers the question, because all we, like sheep, have gone what? Astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. That's why. And because of that, Isaiah says, the Lord laid on him the what? The iniquity, the sin of us all. For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous one, instead of the unrighteous many. The Lord laid on him who had no sin, the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, that in and through him we might receive the righteousness of God, which is the only thing that gives us hope for eternity, because without righteousness we cannot connect to a holy God. So the suffering of Jesus was kind of the first part of this great exchange. Christ took our sin upon himself that we might take his righteousness upon us. And that's what it means to be saved, to trust in his death. And through the trust that we have in his death, we receive the righteousness of God. Now, so many people want God to be totally fair with them. You know, I, I've known people that aren't Christians because they say God's not fair. Do you really want God to be fair with you? You're toast if God is fair with you. See, because the truth be told, all of that suffering for that sin should have been your suffering and mine. I mean, that's what's fair. You judge the offender. Don't you judge the offender? You judge the offender. That would be fair. That's not what Jesus did. Because of his great love for us, God initiates this plan where he would judge the sin of the offender in a perfect substitute. And by judging it in the substitute, the offender who believes receives forgiveness and unconditional acceptance. Thank God he is not fair with us. This is why we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. See, sin requires judgment. Somebody's got to suffer for sin. Somebody has to die. You don't just offend a holy God and expect a holy God 
to turn away from that and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Boys and girls will be boys and girls. No, God must judge it. Somebody's got to suffer. Somebody's got to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or once again, as Peter said it, Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. That's grace. And that was the Father's plan. And you know, you see it began to unfold in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that Jesus was arrested. That's where the suffering of Jesus, you know, beyond what he suffered in his earthly ministry, mostly suffering of words and these attempted uh, uh, attempts at taking his life, the suffering, the agony really began in the garden where we're told here in Mark 14 that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. And that kind of highlights there in the garden the spiritual side of Jesus' suffering. I mean, his spirit and his soul was in agony there. So intense that it bore the first fruits of physical suffering even before the cross. Luke the doctor tells us that Jesus' spiritual suffering in the garden was so great and he agonized to such a degree that he actually began to sweat drops of blood falling to the ground. And had it not been for the presence of a ministering angel there, many believe that Jesus would have died right there in the garden. But I'm sure you're aware it's going to get worse. I'm going to talk more about the cross next time, but one image on the cross that I think speaks more loudly to the suffering of Jesus than any other is the statement that he cries from the cross in the 19th chapter of John. You know, the gospel writers record seven, sta uh, seven statements of Jesus from the cross. They're not all in one place. They're across the four gospel writers. But one of those seven statements I think is very significant, and it's the most overlooked statement. If I ask you to name the seven statements that Jesus cried from the cross, probably most of the people in the room could get several of them. But if there would be one that would be left out more than any other, it would be this one. And yet this one speaks more, I think, to the physical agony of Jesus than any other. It's one word in the Greek New Testament, dipso. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And when you think about the fact that Jesus probably had no fluid at all cross his lips from the time he left the upper room, from the last drink of wine, that was probably for the next many hours, the last intake of fluid that Jesus ever took into his body. And remember all that he had gone through, escorted from one place to another for six different trials, the abuse that he'd suffered, the scourging, the blood loss, the crown of thorns, carrying the crossbeam, nothing to drink for hours upon hours. And he'd been hanging in the hot sun of Palestine now for about six hours. Nothing to drink. And his throat was probably almost collapsed together. 
And so he probably didn't shout it real loud. It was probably very faint. I'm thirsty. Not long after that, the next cry is what? It is finished. That's right. So Jesus suffered. And he suffered excruciatingly. For Christ suffered once for sin. Absolutely essential and necessary to secure our forgiveness and connect us forever to a holy God. He suffered the just for the unjust to bring us to God. So never forget it. We believe in a suffering Savior. And we believe in a suffering Savior because a wounded healer is our only hope for eternity. This is God's Word. And let all God's people say,